You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Uh, the other piece of good news, guys, is I'm so excited to start the book of Joshua. And that's what we're going to do today. It's a great book. I think the Lord has so much for us in here. So let's do that. Let's open our Bibles or turn them on. Turn to Joshua chapter 1. Uh, now, you've probably heard of the old rom-com movie. Uh, there's an old Hugh Grant movie called Four Weddings and a Funeral. If Joshua was a rom-com, uh, which it's definitely not, let's get that clear, it would be called Four Funerals and a Wedding. We get four funerals in the book of Joshua. In fact, it begins and it ends with a funeral. And so we're going to begin with the funeral of Moses. Before it's over, we're going to see the bones of Joseph buried. We're going to have the funeral of a guy named Eleazar. And it's going to end with the funeral of Joshua himself. Uh, So four funerals. Isn't that great news? And you may say, well, hold on. What's the wedding? I don't remember a wedding in the book of Joshua. Well, the wedding actually happened hundreds of years before this. And it Joshua wasn't even born yet. He wasn't even there. The wedding happened when God revealed himself to a man named Abraham. And he said, I'm going to marry myself to your descendants. That's that's the wedding. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. So the question, kind of the open question that Joshua works through and helps us answer is, does the wedding outlast the funerals? Will God's promises endure? What about when we face strongholds? What about when we face a river we can't cross? What about when our heroes die? The God's promises, does that wedding outlast all of it? Joshua's history, it's Old Testament history, and anytime we read history, we're really going to Look at it on three different levels. And so the first level we're going to study the book of Joshua is historical because it is a book of history. It's kind of a transition. It's the the first of seven books that are about the Israelites living in the land. See, when God married himself to that man named Abraham all those years ago, he made Abraham three promises. First promise, descendants. And at this point in the story, we'd have to say, check. That what started out with just a few people, it's now a huge nation. Second promise was blessing. To that, we'd have to say, check. Abraham, his family ended up being wealthy. God provided for them. God protected them. And at this point, he's he's saved them from famine. He's freed them from the mightiest military in the world. So, blessing, check. There's a last promise, land. The land. And that promise is yet to be fulfilled. And that's what the book of Joshua is about. It's about them stepping into that final promise, the promise of the land. So this original audience in Joshua, the people that will be stepping into that, though you got to understand, most of them were born in the desert. So they've heard stories about Abraham. They never met him. That was before their time. They heard stories about Egypt and plagues and all that, but, but they weren't there. And they'd heard stories told of this promise God made of the land hundreds of years ago. But all they've known is desert their whole life. And so now, now they're at the precipice of entering that land and seeing that promise fulfilled. We got any nerds in the room? Nerds? There's dozens of us, all right? 
There's a few, maybe even less than a dozen. Uh, this slide's for you. We got a map of what's going to happen with the book of Joshua, just to orient us a little bit. And so they're start, as the book of Joshua opens, they're starting out uh, to the southeastern part, and they're coming up on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So you can see the Dead Sea and that little body of water coming up. That's the Jordan River. And the Promised Land is on the other side. And so they've actually, the book of Deuteronomy closes, they're around Mount Nebo. And from that mountain, they can see across the Jordan. They can see the land that God promised Abraham, all those years ago. And so what's going to happen as the book unfolds is they'll cross the southern part of that Jordan River. And you can see that city there in red called Jericho that we all learned about in, in vacation Bible school. They'll go to Jericho, they'll go to Bethel, and then they'll start a southern campaign to conquer and take over the land. Now this is all good information, it's important information, it is helpful information, but when we say that, that, that a book of the Bible is history, we mean more than it's just facts to memorize. Just information to learn. And so there's something we got to do. Every step of this journey through Joshua, we have to ask ourselves, why is he telling us this? Why, why is he telling us about these events that happened so long ago? So it, it's not simply to fill our heads with, with information. There is something about God that the author wants to press upon you, that he wants to press into our hearts even today. And so... History, in Joshua, throughout the Old Testament, history, it's a declaration from God about God. And so in that sense, it is timeless. And so there's two more levels we'll read the book of Joshua on. The second way, the second level is practically. So practically, there's a question hanging over the book. How do you and I walk in what God has already prepared for us? How do we accomplish what God said has already said, will happen. There's a couple of approaches to this. So are we kind of spiritual couch potatoes? You know, I'm going to let go and let God. Now, I'll, I'll just be, you know, in front of the Cowboys game if anyone needs me. He's going to do it. Do we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps? You know, we live by the motto, if it's going to be, it's up to me. I'm going to take that hill. Have you experienced this tension? You know, there, there's kind of this mystery of living the Christian life that, frankly, is very hard to describe. Ephesians 2.10 puts it this way. He, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, God prepared good works, but you walk in them. You do them, but you do them in Christ. And so, if I had to summarize what Paul is saying Ephesians, he's saying, you work in Christ. But then we get Philippians 2, Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So that's, that's interesting. So you work, you make decisions, but it's actually God working in you. So God, Christ works in you. So you work in Christ and Christ works in you. Which is it? Well, it's both. It's both. And that... That's part of the art. That's part of the mystery of a life following Christ. And that's exactly what's happening here in Joshua. So in Joshua, two really emphasis emerge throughout the book. We'll see it over and over again. Number one, the land is God's gift. It's yours. Number two, you must lay hold of that gift. So God will say, he'll say over and over, I've given you this land. Now go take it. 
walk in what's already been given to you. So that's what the book of Joshua is about. The book of Joshua is about you working in God and God working in you. So in your life, in your life right now, there is something that God has promised that hasn't come or become a reality yet. If, if nothing else, none of us have experienced full sanctification yet, okay? I, I know you, maybe you thought you were there. You're not there yet. We're still a work in progress. We have not entered the, the promised land of perfect eternity with him yet. And so, so here we are, kind of in this space in between, this already but not yet. How do we live here? That's what Joshua is going to show us. So it's a practical book. We also read it, thirdly, we read it prophetically. And here's, here's what I mean. Not, not in the sense that, you know, he's going to tell you what's going to happen to you on Wednesday at 3.30 p.m. No, no, no. Here's what I mean. Joshua is about Jesus. Joshua prepares us for Jesus. And this is true of the whole Bible. The whole Bible, from cover to cover, is about Jesus. In a sense, it is all red letters. And Joshua himself is meant to point us straight to Jesus. In fact, there's some road signs along the way you can't miss. So his name, Joshua, that's not his original name. His original name was closer to Hosea, but Moses changed his name to Joshua, and in the Hebrew, it's the same name as Jesus. He, he's actually named Jesus, which means God saves. Told you about them crossing the Jordan River, so the place where they crossed the Jordan is likely the site of Jesus' own baptism, a place in the New Testament they call Bethany, beyond the Jordan. That means on the other side, on the east side of the Jordan. We're told in verse 6, chapter 1, that Joshua will cause his people to inherit the land. That's exactly what Jesus does. By being faithful to God's word, by conquering our enemies, by winning victory for his people, by distributing his inheritance among his people. And so the message of the book is, hey, Joshua is great, but he's not the hero. Jesus is the hero. In fact, there's this, there's this tension in the book, we'll see it in chapter 1 and chapter 24, at the beginning and the end. The Israelites, you know, they make these declarations that are so admirable and so spiritual and, and so religious and so full of faith and a total lie. I mean, it's almost comical. So in chapter 1, we'll read it next week, but they get together and they say, yes. All that you command, we will do just as we did with Moses. Now, y'all, when they say that, Moses, he's in heaven. And I have to believe he went into a full-on conniption fit when these people said this. Just, just like you did with Moses. Moses up there being like, y'all drove me nuts the whole time. Y'all drove God nuts the whole time. What's all just like we did with Moses? Come on. Chapter 24. That's how they say Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Come on. Y'all, this is the little kid swearing up and down he didn't eat any of the cake. Meanwhile, his face is covered with the frosting. That's what this is. And Joshua, at the end of chapter 24, in the book, Joshua, he's had enough. He tells them, he tells them, you can't do it. He says, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. 
He won't take half-hearted efforts. He won't put up with a divided heart. He won't sweep it under the rug. He will take into account every sin, and you will not survive that. So Joshua begins and ends with a cry for someone greater than Joshua. One who can save his people, not just from Jericho, not just from the Canaanites, but from their sin. And so the, the question of the book, it, it isn't only can God's promises survive death. It's can God's promises survive our own unfaithfulness. How do we walk in what God has promised us as sinful, broken, adulterous people? Well, today, chapter 1, he's going to start off showing how, how we can do that, how we can walk in what God has for us. And he tells us with two things, strength and courage. And you say, well, hold on, how can that be? We're so unfaithful. Well, here, here's the best news. If you remember nothing else about the book of Joshua, remember this. The book of Joshua is way more about God than it is about you. And so with that in mind, let's read. Chapter 1. We'll read the first nine verses this morning. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses, from the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according, according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Amen. Amen. So here's how we walk in, the, in what God has prepared for us. This is a, our big idea for the sermon today. If I had to summarize those first three verses, it's this. We walk in God's promise with his presence according to his proclamation. We walk in God's promise with his presence, according to his proclamation. So he starts off by repeating his promises. And we got to understand the context here. The, the context of the promise is a predicament. Moses is dead. It's the first thing God says to Joshua. Well, Moses is dead. Now you got to understand, Moses was the man. Do you realize, ever since they left Egypt, that, that whole 40 years, Moses was the only Israelite in direct communication with God. He was Israel's mediator. And so they literally cannot imagine following God, hearing from God, without Moses there. It's never happened. 
the last three verses of the book of Deuteronomy. So the, the words right before Joshua say this. It says, there's no one like Moses. Never been anyone like him. He, he was the man. And now the man is dead. Imagine. Can you imagine the fear, the doubt, the dismay? This isn't, this isn't how this was supposed to go. I mean, how will we ever get into the land now? We're, we're so close, but now it seems so far away. So what do you do when all the hopes you had die? Well, God tells them what to do in verse 2. He says, get up and go. Cross over into the land. See, God's not in crisis. God is not threatened. He's not in a panic. He doesn't tell them, hey, hold on, guys, wait around. I got to figure out a plan B here. He doesn't tell them, hey, just give it up. Just settle where you are. This isn't going to happen. He repeats eight times, eight times, I am giving you this land. This is God's turf. He owns it. He has decided what will happen to it, and he has promised it to you. See, men and women, God's fidelity does not evaporate in the face of funerals. The way you move forward is you simply continue to believe the promises of God. Even if it doesn't fit your plan, even if it doesn't fit your timeline, even if you think you aren't a sufficient or good enough leader. I mean, can you imagine Joshua? He, he's got to follow Moses. And I know he's thinking, I'm, I'm no Moses. We need Moses to do this. But you know who's greater than Moses? Moses is God. It's his promise we trust. It, it's his promise came long before Moses and it will long outlive Moses. See, this is hard for us to get. I know God's promises, they are not built on great personalities. They are built on God's promises. God's kingdom is built on God's promises. So let me ask you, let's just pause here. What have you been hesitant to step into, maybe because it's not going the way you thought it would, or you don't think you can, but God is saying, get up and go. My plan is still my plan. My promise is still my promise. And notice the wording in verse 3 here. He says, every place the sole of your foot treads, I have given you. You see Ephesians 2.10 in there? The Lord has spoken it, but you walk in it. You walk by faith in his promises. But we have to understand, it's called walking by faith, not watching by faith, okay? In high school, I always had this coach, anytime we were kind of, loafing around, you know, ball went to the other side of the field, and we just kind of watch. He'd get on us, and he'd say, listen, if you want to watch, buy a ticket. The bleachers are for the people who watch. We got the jerseys on. We play. There's no bleachers in God's promises, guys. We all got the jerseys on. We, we all play. We work in Christ, and Christ works in us. So get up and go, he says. We walk in his promises. Second, we do it in his presence. And so he assures him, starting in verse 5, he assures him, I will be with you. And he bookends it. He, he's going to repeat it in verse 9. I will be with you. It's the same thing he said to Moses at the burning bush when Moses is like, you got the wrong guy. I don't talk very good, God. God's like, no, my, my name is Yahweh. I am. No matter what you are, I am. And I am with you. And he says this. This, God's presence, this is the express reason you can be strong and courageous. 
It's probably the most famous verse in all of Joshua. We, we put it on our walls and our cross walls and, you know, on our football t-shirts and, all, you know. He repeats it three times in nine verses. Be strong and courageous. Be, be strong and courageous. And there's, there's a reason he has to repeat it, I think. And it's probably because Joshua isn't. You know, there's only one reason I tell my kids to stop yelling in the house. You know why? It's because they're yelling in the house. And if I repeat it, it's because they're still yelling in the house. So in the Bible, you know, God's admonitions tell us a lot about the people sometimes. They tell us all the things that the people are not. And so I think, man, I think Joshua's probably scared and, and insecure and uncertain. And God has to repeat, be strong and courageous because Joshua's probably freaking out. But God tells him, wasn't it? There is one reason you can be strong and courageous. It's because I'm with you. It's not the power of your positive thinking. It's not because you're awesome. It's not because God's going to make your life easy. It's only because God is with you. Now, this is the exact opposite of what most of the world will tell us. Most of the world will tell us, look inside yourself. Find strength and courage in yourself. And listen, I'm here to tell you, look, you're welcome to try that. You can, you can try that all you want. You can look inside yourself till the cows come home, but you will not find what you're looking for. See, the Bible encourages you to look somewhere else. It says, look to him. His presence with you makes you strong and courageous. You know, it's Friday night at the football game. I was reminded of when I was in elementary school and, you know, we'd run around on the concession stand all over the place and you know, every once in a while, a group of older boys would come up. You know, they travel in herds and packs, and here comes a pack of older boys. And, man, it'd be kind of intimidating, you know? Had a, had a real Ward of the Flies vibe around there. You know, you're like, okay, are they going to make fun of us? Are they going to steal our football? Are they going to push us around? What's about to happen? But there was one time, there's only one occasion when I was not intimidated and I was not nervous. It's when my older brother was with me. I knew they wouldn't mess with me was my older brother there. Because my, my older brother, he'd tell them, hey, I'm the only one that can pick on my little brother here, okay? It's my job. It's not your job. His presence gave me courage. That's why the assurance of God's presence appears everywhere in Joshua. We get it in chapter 2, 3, 4, 6, 10, 13, 14, 21, and 23. God is emphatic that you know I am with you. He says, I'll never leave you. That means I, I, I won't let you go. His grasp will never loosen. He's the opposite of Kate Winslet on the Titanic, you know, where she's, <laughs> oh. And then afterwards, somebody pointed out there's plenty of room on that raft for both of them. That, the... He says, I won't forsake you. That, that word means abandon, but it also means neglect. It means fail you. He, he's saying, I'll never fall asleep on the job. I, I'm, I'll never not be working for your good. You know, and, and I would argue that there is nothing more important for us to hear repeated regularly than God say, I will never let you go. I will never neglect you. But we just got to make sure that's what we're wanting. See, sometimes what happens is we forget that the promises are meaningless without the presence. That's the whole purpose of the promise of this rich, fruitful land. 
It's, it's always a means to an end. See, God doesn't give them this promised land just so they can like grow the world's best olives or something. The land is a place where God and man can dwell together. That's what the land is. This thing goes all the way back to the very beginning, all the way back to Genesis. The Garden of Eden was a place where God can dwell with man. But we ruined it. And so then we get the tabernacle. And if you read the description of the tabernacle, it very much matches the description of the garden. And that was the place where God's presence could dwell on the earth. And it even goes forward. So one day there will be a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. And the gloriousness of that new creation is that God's presence will be there. God and man will dwell together. That's what Jesus says in John 14. I am preparing a place for you in my Father's house. My, where my Father lives. Why are you doing that, Jesus? Well, he says that where I am, you can also be. That we can be dwelling together. And so Jesus promises to prepare a place so we can be in his presence. And that's the same, same thing God is promising here. But is his presence what you desire most? You know, some want the land without the presence. Just give us the good stuff. They, they want guidance into the land more than they want a relationship with the guide, you see. Is that you today? You, you keep wanting and asking God to give you something, but, but maybe what he wants to give you is his presence, a relationship with him. For the Christian life, it's, it's in his promises. It's with his presence. Finally, it's a, according to his proclamation. It says in verse 7 through 9, it, it, it's according to the words of God. And, and so he's telling us there, this is what the, all that strength and courage is for. So it comes from God's presence with you, but what's the purpose? What's it, it for? Well, it's not for mighty, bloody battles. It's not for heroic feats of warfare. It is for obedience. Obedience to God's word is the purpose of the strength and the courage. He, get, he even gives us the formula for obedience. And listen, it, it's not how I normally think about how this works. He says, here's what you do. Meditate on it day and night so that you'll be careful to do what it says. So the meditating leads to the carefulness in doing. That word meditate, it means mutter. It kind of has this idea of just, you know, kind of always muttering, talking to yourself in your head, this, this kind of ongoing internal monologue. Now, I learned something this week. You know, almost all people have this internal monologue. We, we talk to ourselves in our head. And so you're going to the grocery store, maybe you're walking out the door, and you'll, you'll tell yourself, don't forget the milk. Do you know not everyone has an internal monologue? There's a thing called aphantasia that happens with people. They don't think in a verbal way. And so they don't they don't think in words. They kind of think visually in pictures, so they don't have this internal monologue. Well, I'm convinced that many Christians have aphantasia when it comes to God's word. We don't preach the truth to ourselves. Now, we love preaching it to other people, especially people who are wrong. That's fun. We don't preach the truth to ourselves. We don't mutter God's words to ourselves day and night. Now, we may depend on some preacher. We may uh, depend on some book here and there to tell us God's word, but we don't meditate on it ourselves. And what God's trying to tell us here is constant, careful, absorbing of the word of God leads to obedience to it. Or 
So the other side of the coin is lack of study leads to a lack of obedience. And so it may be for you that to become obedient, listen, you don't, you don't necessarily need more willpower. You don't need to read the next bestseller. You don't need some great charismatic speaker. You don't need, there's no spiritual secret out there that, that somebody's waiting to tell you. You simply need more time in the word of God on your own. And then God says something really surprising. Made me do a double take, honestly. I was like, is that in there? Oh, it's in there twice. Okay. He, he says, if we will not veer from his word and his promises, we will have success and prosperity. And you know what? That's true. That is absolutely true. But here's what we have to remember. God defines success, not me and not you. God defines success. So in the context, how we've going so far, how is God defining success? It's walking in what he has prepared for you. It is walking in his promise, with his presence, according to his proclamation. And I got to tell you, many people, many people sitting in churches miss the boat because they define success very differently than how God defines it. So they, they try to proclaim promises that God has never promised them. And it usually has something to do with fewer problems, more comfort, you know, winning but God hasn't promised that to you. In fact, you study the original language. The original language is used here in these assurances. They have nothing to do with worldly wealth, nothing to do with worldly success. They have everything to do with accomplishing a mission. This is military mission language. Ron, me of Jeb Stewart. He was one of Robert E. Lee's most trusted generals in the Civil War, and he's often the one that would ride ahead of the main army. And he would, you know, kind of mess with the Union, but he was also a, a spy. He would report back to Lee where the, all the Union soldiers were located. And so as Lee marched his army into U Union territory in 1863, he, he gave Stuart strict, strict orders. We're going into t enemy territory. Do not ride too far ahead. Do not get too far separated from us. We, we need you here. But Stuart got distracted. He, his cavalry, they encountered several small bands of Union soldiers, and they would surprise them, and then they'd take all their stuff and plunder them, and they intercepted horses, supplies, and man, he was excited. He thought this was going to be a bonanza. Lee is going to be so excited about this. He's going to be so happy for me. But he got too far ahead. He lost communication with Lee, and while Stuart was out gallivanting around, Lee was marching his army into a little town in Pennsylvania called Gettysburg. And as the definitive battle of the Civil War unfolded, Lee was fighting blind. He didn't know where the Union positions were. He, he didn't know where his best cavalry was. And finally, after being out of communication for seven days at the hinge of the war, Stuart makes it to Gettysburg. He finds Lee and he, he shows off. He says, look at all the horses, the wagons I bought you. And Lee just looks at him and says, look, General, these are useless to me now. I ask you to keep an eye on the enemy. What Lee was saying in that moment is, I define success, not you. Success is in accomplishing our mission. It's not just in collecting a few horses and wagons. God is saying to Joshua, I am leading you on a mission that is far bigger than you. Success isn't about you. It is about ancient promises given hundreds of years ago that will last into all eternity, long after your life has ended. 
This is success according to God's proclamation. In the same way, men and women, God has prepared a life for you to successfully walk in. And all you need are his promises, his presence, and his proclamation. I want to close the service a little bit differently today. I want to give us some time to meditate on God's word. So usually what happens is I think up a few applications and you're like, that doesn't apply to me. And so you start thinking about your laundry list or to-do list or whatever. So today you're going to get to come up with your own application. So here's, uh, Adam's going to come up. We're just going to give you a couple minutes. He's going to play. Here's what I want everyone to do. I want everyone to reflect on God's word for us today. And if you have a pen, piece of paper, I want you to write down an answer to the question, so what? So what? what? How is God's word applying to my life today? How can I be careful to do all it says and not veer to the right or to the left? And so maybe there's a situation where you, where you need strength and courage. And if that's the case, you need to remember his presence in your life. Maybe you need to spend more time in his word. Write that down. Write, write down a day and a time you're going to spend time in his word. Maybe you need to repent of things that you desire more than his presence. You know what? Or maybe you've forgotten or you've doubted God's promise in the midst of difficult circumstances. Think about it. How, how can you remind yourself what he promises you? Maybe the, there's a particular promise today that God is telling you to trust. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.